Okay, kid stuff. So here we have the first appearance of Morgan Le Fay and her son Mordred since season one's A Night of Shadows. Morgan Le Fay, of course, voiced by Olivia Dabo, who also voices Star Sapphire on this series, and voice 10, Melanie Walker, in Batman Beyond. She is actually British. She was speaking with an American accent for, uh, for 10 and using her real accent here. I'm sure uh, most viewers are aware that Morgan Le Fay and Mordred aren't original DC Comics creations, but rather figures from Arthurian legend. And uh, I did some background research on them, and I'll relate a little bit of their uh, their histories throughout this episode during uh, points through which there isn't a lot to talk about. Morgan Le Fay was first uh, mentioned by name around the year 1150, so almost 900 years ago. Um, interestingly enough, more often than not, in most instances of the, uh, of the legend, she was not Mordred's mother. Rather, Mordred's mother was one of Morgan le Fay's sister, Morgaz. Uh, Morgan le Fay, however, was, as she is here, usually portrayed as being a villainess, uh, most often sort of a seductress, sorceress-type character. Um, Mordred first was first mentioned around 537, so almost 1,500 years ago. Uh, he is, in fact, King, Ar King Arthur's son, as most people are probably aware in most instances uh, of the legend, is usually King Arthur's illegitimate son. Uh, and Mordred is the one who actually fatally wounds Arthur in the same battle in which Mordred himself is killed in the final battle between Arthur and the forces which are amassed against him. So, whether that already happened, or whether at some point they go back in time to Camelot and that happens, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Mordred isn't dead, but d did he succeed in killing King Arthur? I don't know. It's never touched on here. Maybe if we'd gotten a Shining Light Spotlight, ep Shining Night Spotlight episode, that might have been touched on. So here we have the first appearances of Blockbuster and KG Beast. Cheetah and uh, Copperhead, of course, we've seen before. But, uh, Blockbuster is actually a character from the comics. There have been three Blockbusters to date, the third having been introduced only only very recently. Um, but the fir first Blockbuster, the one they use here, uh, his name is Mark Desmond. Uh, he was a chemist. He wanted to become stronger and, and gain power, so he experimented on himself. Uh, but in the process, he gained a lot of strength, but he turned himself into a mindless brute. Uh, he was cared for by his brother, Roland Desmond, who became the second blockbuster. Uh, when his brother became the second blockbuster, his brother was able to maintain his intelligence, which uh, Mark Desmond was not able to. Um, and so Mark Desmond became this brutish villain and faced off against Batman and Robin several times. Um, interestingly enough, years before he became a villain, uh, Desmond had been rescued from drowning by Bruce Wayne. And uh, 
Batman discovered that he could calm Blockbuster by removing his mask and showing him his true face. Uh, so that's an interesting little bit. He was a member of the Secret Society of Supervillains. Um, he was eventually recruited into the Suicide Squad by Amanda Waller, and as a part of that team died, facing off against Brimstone, which was the uh, the huge nuclear robot from Initiation, but in the comics was actually one of Darkseid's minions. KG Beast, for his part, uh, is a Russian mercenary, former soldier and mercenary, uh, tried to kill Ronald Reagan once, so uh, he's got that going for him. And uh, at one point when Batman thought he had him apprehended uh, and tied up via a bat rope, KGB severed his own hand as a, as a means to escape. And ever since has worn a gun as a uh, prosthetic. There he is right there. Copperhead, apparently uh, kind of religious, I guess. He's, uh, he thinks he's paying for his sins by going to hell, it would seem. Now, this dimension they're in here... Oh, I'll get back to that in a second. Whenever a villain shows up and they want to remind the audience that they've seen them before and, imp and impress upon the audience how big a threat they are, they always have Kevin Conroy say the villain's name in a very ominous way. They, they, did, they did it like four or five times. They did it in For the Man Who Has Everything with Mongol, where he goes, Mongol. And they do it here with uh, Morgan Le Fay. Nothing sells a villain's threat like having Kevin Conroy be ominous. But yeah, this dimension they're in here is actually, uh, this episode is one half of a pseudo-crossover with Teen Titans. There was a Teen Titans episode where we saw an alternate dimension and it looked just like this. Now, it's interesting that Green Lantern here is uh, is the one who's most reluctant to go through with this, and it becomes obvious why throughout the episode, and I'll talk about this at a few points, but he's basically, I don't want to say ashamed, but he's kind of embarrassed by the way he used to act as a kid. It's so contrary to the way he acts as an adult that uh, he doesn't want his friends to, to see him that way. And so, it's it's an interesting little twist, and I'll I'll talk about it as when we when we're introduced to Kid Lantern. I like the old timey medieval music that uh, they come up with here in a second. And Mordred's leading all the kids to his castle. So here in a second we're going to get introduced to the Justice Kids, or the Justice Babies, as Mordred calls them, and uh, a few things to talk about with them. Uh, first of all, uh, casting-wise, is that supposed to be Excalibur, first of all? I'm not sure. Um, casting-wise, this is a good bit here where you think there's still <laughs> adults and then the reveal. Uh, Casting-wise... Of the uh, of the four young actors uh, 
that they cast for these parts. The only one who's probably uh, recognizable to mainstream audiences is uh, Kid Wonder Woman's voice actress, Dakota Fanning. Um, she was actually the youngest person ever, at age eight, to be nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. And in fact, she was so short that she was not able to reach the microphone for her acceptance speech, and Orlando Bloom had to hoist her up for the duration of her speech. Uh, the other actors were not familiar to me at the time of this episode, but uh, Kid Superman's voice actor, Shane Habucha, I believe is probably how it's pronounced, uh, later went on to voice Billy Batson in Clash. The mask that John just came up with is uh, familiar to comics readers in all likelihood. It's, uh, it's the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern mask. You can see it right there. Often ridiculed as the crab mask, but nonetheless. And uh, the actor voicing Kid Batman here, Kyle Alcazar, uh, was singled out by Alex Weitzman on the Tunes on Message boards for a list uh, Alex Weitzman made of the most underrated voice actors in the DCAU, and Kyle Alcazar was right up there. Alex felt that uh, Alcazar imbued Kid Batman with, a, with a, a, a really funny sensibility in that Batman is able to come off like a jerk and uh, and act really petulant sometimes because he's such a badass. But when he's reduced to a kid, he's not imposing anymore. And so all of his crankiness just comes off as what it is, crankiness. And it's really funny to watch because you've got this guy who's normally just a complete badass and always in control and, and copying this attitude all the time. And here he just stands revealed as this cranky little kid, and it's it's a really fun reversal. And Alcazar uh, is just just petulant enough. Uh, he still he still manages to come off as cool, but he's walking a fine line, and it's quite well done. Now, Kid Superman here has his powers, obviously has his powers, but it was established in the Superman pilot, Last Son of Krypton, that Clark didn't begin to develop his full-blown powers until he was almost out of high school. Now, I suppose it's possible that he had sort of low-level super strength and invulnerability and so on growing up, but by and large, he didn't develop his powers until high school. Yet here, he's been reduced to a kid, and he's got his full-blown powers. Fly, heat vision, all that stuff. Um, so I don't know what's going on there. I just chalk it up to the magic, I guess. Just like in The Simpsons, you know, a wizard did it. Fantastic animation this episode, too. It's DR Movie again. Ooh. Big beastie. What's it going to be? It's actually just Baby Etrigan. Baby Etrigan is the cutest character design they've ever come up with. People on the message boards after this episode aired were clamoring for a Baby Etrigan plushie to be made, and i got to say, I'd be first in line to pick one up. Look at that. How can you not love that? Batman, of course, is the one to step forward first because he's got the most experience with Etrigan having uh, 
having ran into him on his own series and then being the one who interacted with him most in the Night of Shadows. Look at that. Now, it's obvious to most viewers, but I'll point it out here anyway, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, but Kid Green Lantern here uses a lot more constructs than his adult self ever does. And there's a few points in this episode when he's just so giddy, he can't decide what to create next. He's like, oh, a lawnmower, oh, you know, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. And uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, and I'll... I'll go into it in more detail here. Basically, the impression I got was that, and it, this is backed up in many other episodes, is that Jon Stewart was a real nerd when he was a kid. He was just a big goof. He talks about having rushed home from school every day to read comics. He still gets giddy during Christmas time when he gets to play in the snow, as we saw in Comfort and Joy. Even as an adult, he gets giddy about the snow and about Christmas. And we see here, as a kid, he just had this unbridled imagination. And, of course, a Green Lantern needs to have a certain amount of imagination to be able to create constructs with the ring. But we never really saw it come out too much. But here, it's just, you know, front and center. You just see that he's got this unbridled imagination. He can barely hold himself in check. And so you kind of get the impression that Jon Stewart is just, you know, even after he's grown up, he's just basically a big kid. And he tries to cover up with this gruff demeanor and this no-nonsense military attitude, but uh, you can't be a Green Lantern without having a certain amount of childlike wonderment about uh, about the possibilities of the universe and about you know the possibilities of human imagination and and human achievement. But uh, but this is really the first time that we've been exposed to that aspect of John Stewart's personality. You think this blonde girl would be a bit more respectful to Wonder Woman, seeing as how she saved her life back in uh, Paradise Lost. But, you know, I can understand why the blonde girl would be kind of jaded, seeing as how she shows up in, like, every other episode and is always in danger in the background, so she's kind of seen it all at this point. This was the first episode to really... I mean, they kissed in Starcross, sure, but then they didn't talk about it afterwards... This is really the first episode where characters start to talk about how Batman and Wonder Woman kind of have a thing going on. And of course, as adults, they're all too polite to bring it up, be kind of a sore subject. But as kids, they're, uh, they have no compunction about, uh, about teasing each other about it. And I love how kid Wonder Woman, and I mean, I wonder how much of this was the writers and producers making fun of themselves a little bit, because they got called on making Wonder Woman kind of a bit too uppity at times, especially early on when she was new to Man's World, and that was part of the characterization they chose to go with, but still. Uh, whereas here, they're really uh, they're really bringing it out by making her such a tease and so bossy, as, as John describes her. I kind of wonder if they're, uh, <laughs> if they're having a little fun with themselves, with their own characterization. Here, just a little bit here in a second where John's he's going to kiss his ring before he... There he goes, <laughs> before he creates the construct. I 
I don't think I ever noticed Mordred's headphones before. I can't believe I never noticed that before. He was wearing headphones when he was sitting there. Just great little animation touches there, like um, when Superman sort of struggles to pull himself up there. And here in a second, see our Superman's theme there. Um, Chris Carter, who did the the music for this episode, I've noticed tends to use the characters' themes, musical themes, a lot more frequently than uh, than the other compo- composers, uh, Mike McQuestion and Lolita Ritmanis. I, I don't know why that is, but. I love hearing the themes. I, I feel it adds another dimension to the show, and I've gone so far as to catalog all the musical themes for uh, the DC Animation Commentaries website. You can check that out, check that out if you want. But uh, Chris Carter tends to to whip them out a lot more than the others do. Even the little surfboard that he creates is great. Cartoon Network uh, inserted some commercial breaks where they shouldn't be when they showed some of these earlier episodes. And one of them was right here. And it uh, really disrupted the flow of the episode. It's weird because the shows used to have three acts. And then uh, when JLU started, they only had two acts. And Cartoon Network would have to insert a third, uh, another commercial break to break it up into three acts artificially. And then the producers uh, started making the shows three acts again. It's like it's like they couldn't... Uh, it's like the lines of communication broke down between uh, Bruce Tim and the others and uh, and Cartoon Network, and they were never quite sure how many acts they should put in their shows, how many cartoon, how many commercial breaks Cartoon Network wanted. Got the Green Lantern theme a second ago there when John was busting out his big mecca. Keep away. Little Kirby dot effect there. That's uh. That's something Jack Kirby used to do a lot, and um, and Etrigan was created by Jack Kirby, so there's a, there's a bit of a through line there as far as why they're using it, but uh, that sort of splotchy dot pattern uh, that was emanating from Mordred's eyes there a second ago as part of his power is, is the Kirby crackle or the Kirby dot. There it is again. Interestingly enough, in some versions of uh, the Arthurian legend, most notably in in the Once and Future King, uh, Mordred was not only an illegitimate son, but was actually conceived somewhat without uh, 
without Arthur's knowledge or consent, he was uh, Arthur was affected by magic, was was sort of entranced and forced to you know conceive Mordred. So that that feeds into his uh, his need to prove himself and his his petulance. He was unintentionally wasn't wanted, and so he's always trying to achieve bigger and greater things to prove himself. Now, there's no separate actor credited for adult Mordred, so I wonder if it's uh, more young Mordred's voice actor pitched down, or if uh, if they did something else with it. I don't know, but. Uh, Mystery. So here in a second, when uh, when the wave sweeps over our guys and uh, they're turned back into adults, and and Etrigan is in Wonder Woman's arms, or or rather in a second when when Morgan Le Fay turns them back here, uh, Etrigan says "Mommy," and that's actually Kevin Conroy as Etrigan so distinctive that uh, that you can really really recognize it right there I didn't want to get Michael T. Weiss just for one line I guess now Batman's line here in a second when he says I haven't been a kid since I was eight years old um, took a little bit of flack because this episode is really just a lighthearted romp and uh, Batman's really uh his line is like, you know, whoa, Captain Bringdown here at the end of the episode. It's sort of, it's, some people thought it was striking the wrong note, that it was too too downbeat uh, a note to end the uh, the episode on. Especially since we go right from here to, you know, ancient Mordred being taken care of by his mother, and that sort of disturbing image. And it's, uh, it defies your expectations, it certainly does that, but... Uh, whether it's in a good way or not, I'll leave it to you to decide. So that's Kid Stuff. Written by uh, Henry Gilroy, who hasn't written anything for the DCAU since way back in uh, Batman the Animated Series. It was, uh, it was a pitch from him, and uh, the producers decided to go with it, but they required a little bit of tinkering uh, from Gilroy specifically. They wanted a better reason for the leaguers to turn into kids, and they wanted to work Etrigan in there. And he happily obliged. Thanks for listening.